Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Did you know there are more frog species than mammals on planet Earth? Coming up, we learn how dinosaur extinction helped frogs thrive. Today, there are more than 6,700 frog species. But first, did you know birds today are relatives of carnivorous dinosaurs? Does that mean this group of dinosaurs like the mighty Tyrannosaurus rex all had feathers back then? Not necessarily, according to new research. We're talking about dinosaurs today on Where We Live. When did you fall in love with all things dinosaur? Or do they still captivate you? Email wherewelive at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, it's safe to say our next guest still digs dinosaurs. Dr. Scott Persons is a paleontologist at the University of Alberta, has a Ph.D. in evolution and systematics. Dr. Persons, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. When people look out the window at their backyard feeder, it might be surprising to some to think that these birds are related uh, to a giant dinosaur. When scientists are talking about the evolution of birds from um, a certain type of dinosaur, what dinosaurs are we talking about? Sure. So we now know that birds belong to one particular branch of the dinosaur family tree, and that's the branch that we call the theropods. And mixed in among the theropods are some of the most famous dinosaurs, animals like Tyrannosaurus rex uh, and, and Velociraptor. And among the theropods, birds right now we think are most closely related uh, to those raptor dinosaurs, to things uh, like uh, a Velociraptor, Deinonychus, Truodon, these uh, uh, relatively small carnivorous dinosaurs. So carnivorous, so not the Triceratops or the Stegosaurus. No, no, those belong to another a major branch of the dinosaur family tree. You can trace that lineage of, of theropods down to where it meets up with things like Stegosaur, uh, Triceratops. That happens very, very early on, that split in the history of dinosaurs. So we know that birds today evolved from that that, uh, group of dinosaurs, the theropods, as you mentioned. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all of these particular dinosaurs, like the T-Rex, were covered in feathers. What is this latest research? It's a paper that you co-authored. What did you find? Uh, Well, I found along with uh, numerous colleagues, we did some cool research on Tyrannosaur skin fossils that are preserved. Um, And we we recorded instances of skin from a number of different kinds of Tyrannosaurs, including Tyrannosaurus rex, uh, but also some critters from Asia, an animal called Tarbosaurus, uh, some other Tyrannosaurus from North America, uh, Albertosaurus, Displetosaurus, a, a whole bunch. And what we found is that from different parts of, of the body, uh, including uh, some from the, the hips and the neck and the tail, uh, we've got scaly skin, um, skin that's kind of like what you would see along the sides of the body of a crocodile or, or an alligator. Uh, and that's as opposed to some other more primitive Tyrannosaur um, material that's been found in, in China that clearly shows the presence of an extensive covering of feathers. So this research uh, that you and, and many others worked on, is it possible that the T. rex had feathers on a certain portion of their body? 
Yeah, so what we have is we know that a lot of the animal's body seems to be mostly covered uh, in scales. But if I actually had to place a bet on whether or not T. rex had some feathers, I'd still probably predict that it did have a few uh, here and there. Uh, maybe it had some around the face. It's certainly still possible that T. rex had like a crest of feathers here or, or there. But the evidence really does seem to suggest that the majority of the body was not extensively covered in feathers. So uh, what was the purpose of these feathers? I can't imagine a, a T-Rex uh, was flying because it's so big. What was the purpose of, of feathers on particular dinosaurs? Sure, sure. Uh, so if we think about some of these uh, more primitive uh, ancestors of, of Tyrannosaurus rex, the ones from China that we know do have an extensive covering of feathers, the feathers are not really like what uh, the, the feathers that we think of on, on a modern-day bird that have a very complex sort of leaf shape to them. They're much uh, simpler. Uh, they're more hair-like. Uh, and the thinking is that the these sort of early proto-dino fuzz, as it's sometimes called, is, is there to serve the same function as mammalian fur and hair. It's there for insulation. It's there to hold in uh, body heat. And then when we come to the question of why is it in an animal like Tyrannosaurus rex, this covering of feathers seems to be uh, reduced. Well, one sort of possible explanation for that is that the same things going on there that you see in some modern-day big mammals. Think about things like elephants uh, or rhinos or hippos or even Cape buffalo. Those are, are big mammals that live in a very warm environment, and they don't have very much hair. They've just got a little bit. Um, and the reason for that is when you're a really, really big animal in a warm environment, you're not so concerned with holding in your own body heat. Just the opposite. Your biggest problem if you're a, a big bull elephant is getting rid of your heat, of shedding it. So you don't want to have uh, an insulating coat. Tyrannosaurus rex lived in uh, very warm uh, environments. It was certainly a very, very big animal. Uh, so it's particular lineage may have wanted to have reduced its feather covering for the same reason that, that elephants reduce their hair. Uh, when we look back at our childhoods watching uh, different sci-fi movies, a lot of times uh, people believe that dinosaurs were actually reptiles. Can you talk a little bit about that debate? Sure. Um, so the idea that dinosaurs should sort of be conceptualized as, as reptiles really goes back to the very first point in, in, in history when dinosaurs were recognized as a group. Um, and at that point in time, we had very, very limited uh, fossil remains of dinosaurs. We didn't have great complete skeletons. And some of the pieces of the skeleton that we happened to have uh, included sections of the jaws and the teeth. Teeth of carnivorous dinosaurs look very, very similar to the teeth of some carnivorous lizards, things like Komodo dragons. They also look fairly similar to the teeth of, uh, of crocodiles. And the teeth of the herbivorous dinosaurs that we had also reminded a lot of naturalists of the teeth of a modern herbivorous lizard, something like an iguana. And so based on that early limited material, there was immediately a connection made between dinosaurs uh, and, and reptiles. And with not a lot of other bones to go on, uh, that was sort of taken to the extreme. The thinking was, well, their teeth are like reptiles in all other ways. They were most likely uh, like reptiles. And the truth is that that sort of a reptilian stigma just stuck with dinosaurs uh, throughout. If, if it had been the case that we had, instead of finding uh, great 
great sections of, of the teeth and jaws, if we gotten lucky and found the foot of a carnivorous dinosaur, I actually think right away naturalists would have recognized, wow, that foot really, really looks uh, like the foot of a bird. And dinosaurs might have been thought of as, as giant birds from the beginning. Uh, when we're talking about these particular group of, of theropods, dinosaurs that had the feathers, if they were smaller, what do scientists know about whether they were flying at the time? That's a great question. Um, and that really depends on what particular theropods we want to talk about. So a lot of these smaller theropods, again, just have this very, very simple uh, uh, fuzzy, fuzzy coating for insulation, and we're certainly not capable of, of flying. Now, some other theropods, things like Oviraptorosaurus, they've got fairly large, uh, more complex, more leaf-like feathers, but they're also not flying. And the thinking there is that these more complex feathers may have originally shown up to do things like serve as, as social displays, maybe take a role in courtship. Uh, displays. You think about the, the fans of feathers on a turkey or a peacock. That's the function that they serve. But if you really progress towards that group of, of raptor dinosaurs, you can find some critters, animals like uh, a Microraptor, that were uh, very, very small. Uh, there's some evidence to suggest they may have been climbing up trees, and they may have actually been using early uh, wings uh, of, of feathers to potentially glide from tree to tree, um, a little bit like what a, a flying squirrel does. And following that scenario then, so you've got feathers showing up early on to hold in body heat, you've got more complex feathers showing up to be useful as, as lightweight social display structures, and then in one particular group, you've got these feathers being modified maybe to help you glide. And from there, it's pretty easy to see how you could get true flight evolving. This is where we live. On the phone with us is Dr. Scott Persons, a paleontologist at the University of Alberta. Today we're talking about how birds uh, evolved from a certain group of dinosaurs, the theropods, and uh, new research into the fact that uh, a T-Rex fossil has been found that shows it's not necessarily all covered in feathers. Uh, again, we're talking about this today as we look into uh, the idea that birds are Dinosaurs. Is that accurate to say when we look out the window today, Dr. Persons, that these birds are dinosaurs? Absolutely. When you look at your bird feeder day, you're seeing a very specialized group of dinosaurs, but dinosaurs nonetheless. I always thought when, I, when you see a pileated woodpecker, I, they look so prehistoric to me. <laughs> They do, they do. So I grew up in North Carolina, and I had that same experience of seeing pileated woodpeckers outside, and there is something very prehistoric about them. So I had another question. There's the, the Archaeopteryx, if I'm saying yeah. that correctly. So when we, when we look at this particular uh, dinosaur, how does that factor in into this evolution from uh, the theropods to the modern-day bird? Okay, so Archaeopteryx is arguably one of the most important fossil specimens that has, has ever been found. And part of that is because it was found uh, very early on. Uh, Archaeopteryx became known about um, sh shortly after um, the, the theory of evolution got, uh, got, got, got published. Archaeopteryx is a really cool critter, um, and it, it is a, a true uh, missing link. It combines a lot of characteristics of uh, more primitive dinosaurs with characteristics of, of advanced birds. Uh, it's got very complex, clearly uh, flight feathers. 
Uh, it's got a bunch of feathers on its tail, but unlike a modern-day bird where the tail would be very, very short and just be a big fan of feathers, Archaeopteryx still has a lot of bones in its tail, so it's got a long bony tail, and it's really got sort of a feathery frond instead. Um, even though it's, 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 it's on its way towards birds, it has got uh, teeth, so it's not yet developed the beak of a modern-day bird. Uh, in its wings, if you look at its fingers, it's still got claws, just like a dinosaur. Now, there is currently a lot of discussion about where exactly in relationship to birds the, specimen, the, the, the species Archaeopteryx uh, actually, actually falls. Mm -hmm. um, some, some people would argue it is very, very likely that it is on the direct lineage leading on to birds. So you progress right through Archaeopteryx or something very similar to Archaeopteryx. Um, others have said, well, you know, it may actually be another one of these little side branches. It's very common that when you start really getting into the nitty-gritty of evolutionary relationships, things tend to get very, very bushy uh, very quickly. It's not always a nice, clean, uh, linear uh, progression. So you wouldn't call the Archaeopteryx the first bird? Well, that depends on, on who, you, uh, who, who you talk to. Mm -hmm. Uh, some people might say that, you know what, Archaeopteryx is the point where we choose to draw the line. We do think it's uh, something very close to the direct ancestors of modern-day birds. Yes, it should be considered uh, the earliest birds. Other people, again, would say, no, hold on. Uh, it's, it's a different, a slightly different branch of the theropod uh, family tree. And really, I think that that's sort of the fact that we're having that kind of discussion um, shows you just how similar uh, a lot of these theropod dinosaurs are to, to, to birds as we know them today. And before we head to break, uh, Dr. Persons, I did want to ask, uh, at, at what point did paleontologists decide that birds were indisputably descended from a certain group of dinosaurs? That's a good question. So the idea that dinosaurs are the ancestors of birds is very, very old. That actually goes back to like uh, 1868 with Thomas Henry Huxley. But when we really put the final nail in the coffin, I think was uh, there in the 1990s uh, when the first feathered dinosaurs were found because feathers are sort of this great unequivocal birdie trait. If, you, if you've got feathers, we know you're related to birds. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the phone with us, Dr. Scott Persons, a paleontologist at the University of Alberta, as we talk about the carnivorous dinosaur-bird connection. Despite their evolutionary ties, new research shows that the T-Rex most likely was not covered entirely with feathers, but scales did exist on their skin. Now, coming up, a Yale scientist will join us to talk about his cutting-edge research that's giving new insight into the process behind the evolution of birds. This is where we live. Miami Vice. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Timmy, what is it? It's a velociraptor. You know that scene from the movie Jurassic Park. Now, it's been 66 million years since dinosaurs lived on our planet, but they're still captivating us and scientists, too. Earlier, we learned about the latest discovery that the T-Rex was not covered entirely in feathers, unlike some of its close dinosaur relatives, the ancestors of birds. On the phone with us is Dr. Scott Persons, a paleontologist at the University of Alberta. And joining the discussion now is Dr. Bart Anjan Buller. He's the professor and curator of paleontology at Yale University. University. Dr. Buller, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. We just heard that clip from the, the classic uh, dino movie, Jurassic Park, and we were hearing the sounds of the velociraptor uh, that, that were the dino villains. Uh, um, I understand right. that these fictional dinos have a connection to paleontology at Yale. Tell us about that. That's right. Okay, so the original book, Jurassic Park, upon which the movie was based, mm-hmm. it had a creature in it that was the velociraptor. And it was called Velociraptor, which is the genus name. The species name was Anteropus. The reason for that was that there had been a book published earlier that synonymized all of these raptor-like dinosaurs under a single genus, Velociraptor. But the species Anteropus is actually Deinonychus Anteropus, which is an animal that was first found by Yale paleontologists. And when you look at uh, Deinonychus, it's exactly the size and the shape of the Jurassic Park Velociraptors, and so those are based on this animal. Whereas the only animal that has the genus name Velociraptor now is um, something called Velociraptor mongoliensis, which is about the size of a fox. So it's a really small animal from Mongolia. So the Yale animal is the animal in Jurassic Park. And this um, was found by a Yale paleontologist, John Ostrom? That's right. John was from in, uh, in the mid-1900s and then first published in 1969. And it was very, very important in reviving the idea that birds are, in fact, living dinosaurs because it was very bird-like, despite being rather large and obviously, uh, you know, running around on land. I wanted to go back to Dr. Persons. Uh, can you talk about the physical features that birds share in common with their ancestors, like the Deinonychus that we just heard about? Absolutely, yeah. Deinonychus really was a, a catalyst that brought what's been called the dinosaur renaissance about because there were so many characteristics in Deinonychus that could be recognized all at once and pointed to that suggest, hey, this thing really, really is uh, a bird-like. Uh, we talked about how similar the feet were uh, in, in many theropods. That's certainly true for Deinonychus as well. It's got an S-shaped uh, neck. It's got uh, semi-lunate carpal, so a specialized wrist bone that could turn back just like a bird. Uh, it's got a pelvis, a hip that's extremely uh, a bird-like. And of course, now we know that animals uh, like Deinonychus have got feathers. Uh, when we were just talking about Jurassic Park, when we're looking at low-budget um, dino movies, uh, how, how did they use uh, bird feet to, uh, you know, to film the scenes where the, the, the dino uh, is coming to attack? 
So, of course, in, in Jurassic Park, they're able to do all sorts of, of cool stuff where they use uh, CGI, etc. Uh, but as a kid, I remember watching um, older uh, B, as you say, low-budget uh, science fiction movies. And there it was often the case that when you needed to show sort of a, a scene of a dinosaur uh, uh, approaching, oftentimes people would film an emu walking. They just zoom in on, on the animal, planting its foot. Uh, and, and stepping away. And, and really, that's a great special effect uh, to use because that foot uh, is, is more uh, dinosaur-like uh, than, than any, any uh, puppetry you could, you could try to whip together. Uh, Dr. Buller, we were just talking to Dr. Persons about features um, that were dinosaurian. You're doing specific research at Yale uh, to understand bird evolution, uh, reverse engineering, so to speak. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on. That's right. So primarily we are still paleontologists, which means that we look at the history of life and the way in which major transitions in evolution have played out during that history, right? So we always start with the fossils. And part of my lab involves people working with fossils, both physically, and now we have uh, technology like CT scanning where we can look at them digitally, take them apart, put them back together, analyze them on computers. So that's one part. But the other part is a lab that you would not find out of place in a big molecular developmental kind of research center or, say, a cancer research center. It's a, it's, a, it's a wet lab. You know, it has people wearing lab coats, working with solutions, things like this. And that part of the lab, the sort of molecular part of the lab, is there because these big transitions that we see in evolution in the fossil record, you know, if you think about how an organism varies anatomically and how change occurs, Really, the changes that you need to implement are not in the adults, but they happen when an organism is developing from a single cell, single, right, fertilized zygote, to an adult. And so those happen during development. So all these changes, like the transition from a hand to a wing or from a mouth to a beak, are going to be happening first visible in the embryo. Those will be you know, patterned by molecular instructions that tell them how to make those things. And you're working with chicken embryos specifically. What features are you honing in on? So the, the major features that we've looked at uh, recently are features of the head. We had a, kind of a research program that continues looking at the origins of the beak versus kind of the snout that other reptiles, other animals really have. Um, and we're interested now, too, in how birds get their relatively large brains. And birds you know, are not all terribly smart. Some are. But uh, they do have very big brains compared to their reptilian ancestors, and that's something that played out during dinosaurian evolution. And that seems to have profoundly affected uh, the skull as well. And then we've got, we've got smaller teams just beginning to look at the, um, you know, the hand and the tail and, and other parts of the animal that are transformed between something like a dinosaur and something like a bird. So for our listeners who are hearing you describe uh, your research in the lab, it's not like you're working on genetically modifying chickens. You're just uh, working with embryos to see at what point certain features are developing. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's the first part. It does move on from there. You know, again, we, we are interested in the process of evolution. So we're not looking to, you know, make a dinosaur or a non-avian dinosaur. But as part of this process, you know, you first look at how things, when things change in the embryo, or when they don't, in the case of, say, the alligator embryos or the reptile embryos that we use for as kind of comparative, uh, you know, primitive conditions, things that don't have beaks or don't have wings. So you look at that, but then 
you can also go and say, okay, I've seen that it's at this point that you start seeing differences between the face of a chicken and the face of an alligator that involve getting a beak. Now I'm going to look for the genes that are involved or the sort of molecular kind of machinery that's involved in making that beak versus that snout. And at that point, what, what we did for that particular experiment is that we found some major differences in the way genes were kind of deployed in the embryonic phase that we thought might be responsible for, you know, chickens having, uh, uh, for birds having a beak. And we were able to go and sort of brute force remove those bird-specific, uh, remove that bird-specific gene activity and replicate the reptile condition, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And those birds did, grew up with a skeleton that was more like a dinosaur face than a bird face. And so I think, we did kind of reverse engineer things in that case. I think we have pictures on our website of, of exactly yeah. what it looks like um, in each stage. Um, are there any ethical questions uh, to this kind of research, and how would you address those for people who are listening? Absolutely. These lab organisms are never allowed to hatch or to go to any kind of viable stage. You know, we push them as embryos to the point where we can learn something about the development of the face. And then we, you know, humanely sacrifice them. And, and we use as few embryos as possible, many, many fewer than, you know, would be killed in one day in like a, a factory farm or something that's, that's processing chickens for meat. And with a great deal of care and individually. And the things we discover, you know, don't just tell us fundamental, uh, give us fundamental insights into the way evolution works. But for instance, during this research program, we also discovered a connection between two genetic pathways that operate in all faces, including human faces. And so this has relevance to things like genetic diseases and disorders in medicine. Um, so, I mean, we're very concerned, we're very aware of each organism that we use because you know, that, that is a life, right? And we think carefully about the experiments that we do and why we do them before we start. This is where we live. On the phone with us, Dr. Bart Anjan Buller, professor and curator of paleontology at Yale University. We're learning um, specifically about his research uh, uh, with his uh, with his team at Yale to understand uh, the evolution of birds from a certain group of dinosaurs. On the phone with us also, Dr. Scott Persons, a paleontologist at the University of Alberta. Dr. Persons, can you weigh in on the research being done here at Yale? What are your thoughts? Oh, that's super cool stuff. So I, I'm, personally, I'm... I'm I'm, I'm a fossil and a, and, and a field guy, and this kind of uh, sophisticated research that's being done, uh, looking at, again, the fact that modern-day birds are dinosaurs and using what we can observe in them um, to piece together um, the, 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 the prehistory of, of dinosaur and bird evolution is, is really super cool uh, stuff. We've been talking about Jurassic Park um, and so, you know, science fiction is on the table, and the kind of research that Yale is doing right now, uh, you know, growing up, that was something that would seem like it was out of science fiction. Um, and I think it's, it's really cool, uh, very exciting research. Uh, Dr. Buller, I'll go back to you. Uh, you. Again, you're looking at certain embryos and um, certain proteins, changing those up to see how uh, features may change in, in these chicken embryos. But yes. could scientists actually create a dinosaur today? Well, yeah. You know, I, something that looks like a dinosaur, sure. There, and there's, I think there's sort of three levels to this. Um, for one thing, you know, obviously it would take time. We'd have to, but we have the tools that are necessary to do it. Uh, it's really, you know, 
it's easy to alter embryonic development in in a bird in particular because of the way you can kind of cut open the eggs and the embryos will still live as they're manipulated mm-hmm. if you're careful. But um, you know there are there are a few kind of ways to do it. One is just sort of blindly manipulating embryonic pathways so things look like dinosaur features, right? The second way is to actually go to reptiles, see what they're doing developmentally, and try to replicate that using things like what we did, which is alter protein function. Mm-hmm. And you'd have to do that in each new generation. You know, so you could go and try to like inhibit the beak. You could go and try to make the tail longer. Go and try to make the, the fingers um, not fuse up into the hand. And you could probably do that successfully with a whole bunch of sort of specific manipulations. But again, you'd have to do it with each individual embryo. The third way is to go and to look at those changes in protein activity and try to find the actual um, control regions in the genome that are responsible for those differences. And then to modify the genome itself to be more ancestral, which is something that's possible now, especially with CRISPR-Cas9 and other forms of genome editing. But it involves a level of knowledge of the genome that we don't even have for humans yet. And so that's just going to take a lot more research. So frustratingly, or if for people who want to make you know, dinosaurs, we do have the tools, but it's really the development of the knowledge of exactly what in the, you know, the, the billions of base pairs in, say, a, 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 the genome of any organism, exactly what you know, two or three or four are responsible for the changes in which we're interested. Does that make some sense? It does, and you explain that it's very complex and you have the tools, but then the question is, should scientists possibly try to recreate a dinosaur, why that wouldn't, would or not be a good idea? Well, <laughs> I mean, again, you know, what our, lab, what our lab does is to look at evolutionary changes one by one, and part of that validation of our ideas about how things happen is to, in a very, very specific, limited way, go and try to kind of resurrect some past forms. I, I'm not sure, I mean, as far as actually going back and wholesale kind of trying to recreate something that didn't, that doesn't exist today. I mean, I think, I think we have, we really do have to sit and think about what the reasons for that would be. I mean, one could think of scientific questions, I guess, that could be answered with an organism generated in that way. But there's something, you know, we're, we're reaching very quickly with genome editing, a world in which sort of designer creatures are, are possible. And, those are going to happen, I think, through private enterprise in places maybe that have less scrupulous ethics laws. And unfortunately, you know, human modification is going to, well, fortunately, in terms of genetic disease, but unfortunately, in terms of a lot of other things, that's going to be on the table as well. And so I think that this question about, you know, resurrecting entire viable animals has to be on the table along with these other major ethical questions and not just something that we automatically decide that is going to happen and that we're going to do. You see, there's a big difference between changing a little part of one embryo to try to figure out how evolution works and actually kind of, you know, making, trying to make something new. I wanted to go back to Dr. Persons. Uh, first, if you wanted to add anything uh, uh, to what Dr. Buller was saying, but also when we think about the mass extinction of dinosaurs uh, way back when and uh, what we can learn from that uh, today as we as the focus now is on how the climate is changing, how other uh, species are um, are dying. 
Sure, sure. In in relationship to your first question, I just reemphasize the point that there is, you know, a, a big difference between the prospect of, of trying to, to genetically resurrect a dinosaur to to fit the premise of Jurassic Park to put it on display uh, versus the idea of, of, of studying the process of, um, of seeing which genes to switch on and off mm-hmm. in order to learn about the evolutionary history of dinosaurs uh, and, and birds. In relation to, um, to the dinosaur mass extinction um, and, and how it reflects to our, our, our current situation, um, so, of, of course, um, while we're talking about big paleontological debates that seem to very much so have been settled now, um, as far as the extinction of the dinosaurs go, the prevailing hypothesis, of course, is that uh, 66 million years ago an enormous asteroid uh, collided um, with Earth and, and brought about uh, the, cat- the catastrophe that ended the dinosaurs. And when it hit, you know, it caused huge uh, su- tsunamis. It formed a, a tremendous crater down the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, it sent off flaming debris that may have started widespread forest fires and things like that. But the biggest thing that the, the impact is thought to have done is that it sent up very, very fine dust into the atmosphere uh, that didn't settle down for a long time. And while up there, it was essentially a layer of smog. Um, And that smog blocked out sunlight um, and caused widespread uh, global cooling. And that kind of of big climate change um, spelled disaster uh, for, for the dinosaurs. It was bad for a lot of other critters as well, but dinosaurs, with the exception of birds, we think were hit particularly hard because a lot of them were large-bodied animals. Um, and when you block out the sun, you uh, kill off a lot of plants, and when you kill off plants, you begin to kill off herbivores. And big herbivores, of course, require a lot more food than small ones, so they are particularly uh, vulnerable. Nowadays, uh, we're at a point in time that many suspect may be the start of, a, of another mass extinction. We may be at, at risk of losing some of our major lineages. And just like back then, um, some of the groups that are, that are most in danger tend to be uh, big animals, um, things like elephants, rhinos, whales, all those major uh, lineages are, are, are at, at the risk of, of extinction. And what about humans? Uh, well, humans, of course, are doing all right for ourselves uh, at the moment. We're doing um, better than, than any other, uh, I'd I, I say, any other species uh, in, in, in history. Um, obviously, there's reason to think that you know, our, our own hubris may be our, 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 di- our downfall. And while we, we may be able to outlast um, uh, a lot of other uh, big animals, certainly we suffer from, from the same problems. We are... Uh, by vertebrate standards, still a fairly large organism. We certainly have very high uh, energy uh, requirements. Um, But, you know, in in the immediate future, I think our our bigger concern, again, is an ethical dilemma about the responsibility that we have for other species. Uh, Dr. Buller, again, uh, professor and curator of paleontology at Yale University, Uh, again, this idea that we are in this sixth uh, mass extinction phase. What are your thoughts on uh, the vulnerabilities and what we can learn um, from the dinosaur phase to our futures? The end Cretaceous extinction, which is really a cataclysmic kind of sudden extinction, right, is one of a number of 
turnovers and, and extinction events that we've seen throughout the history of life. And all of them, I mean, they do share a certain number of characteristics. In that way, I think, you know, one of the things that's really kind of important to keep in mind is that when you have sort of a top-down extinction, like the ones that humans have been causing, and by the way, you know, that, that extinction of especially large-bodied animals started not just recently, but it began, I mean, almost when humans kind of first made it out of Africa. That's absolutely and, true, yes. And, yeah, and start and and it, almost everywhere you know humans hit, starting from about a hundred thousand years ago, on there were there were major extinctions of large animals, and so that began then. And when you have when you take out some of the upper levels of the kind of the trophic chain, there are major repercussions to sort of the rest of the ecosystem. And so every time you do that, you're kind of rearranging things. You have you have a different distribution of plants. You have a dis- different distribution of small animals. And that can wreak havoc on especially people who are agricultural, and every society is agricultural in some way. It can um, wreak havoc on just sort of the, the general environment. And so there are major, even, even though it's sort of a selective extinction, there's still major repercussions even in that, never mind from the, the kind of widespread deforestation and the, the obliteration of a lot of um, uh, sort of surface environments that humans are enacting. Um, and so it's just, and the thing is that, you know, you can reach a point at which a system just collapses catastrophically. It can be going along fine, seemingly fine, and then can just hit some resource limit where everything goes to hell. And the fear is that we're beginning to reach that point, or we have several times reached that point now. And so we, we're not going to necessarily see gradual warning signs prior to a major kind of cataclysm. If, does that make some sense? Yeah, and a lot of these extinctions, yeah. they look really sudden and, and dramatic when we stare back at them through geologic time in, in, in the rock uh, record. Um, I think it's, it's worth pointing out, too, that you know if you could stare back and look at the history of humanity so far, that's just a, a quick blip uh, in, in geologic time. It all gets compressed very, very quickly. <laughs> Well, I want to thank Dr. Bart Anjan Buller, professor and curator of paleontology at Yale University. Thank you so much for speaking with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. Also, Dr. Scott Persons, a paleontologist at the University of Alberta. He's got some great videos that we'll tweet out as well uh, if you are captivated by dinosaurs. Uh, Dr. Persons, thank you for your time today as well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, coming up, we've been talking about dinosaurs, but we're going to find out how frogs benefited from when that asteroid hit Earth 66 million years ago. That's after the break. They were terrible lizards, don't you know? Some ate plants and some ate meat. Some ate fish and some ate beets. One was called a diplodocus. One was bigger than your school bus. One was called a triceratops, three horns to stop anything it hops. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now joining us now is Dr. Dave Blackburn, Associate Curator of Amphibians and Reptiles at the Florida Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida. He's going to tell us a little bit more about the research they've done on how frog species have thrived uh, after the extinction of, of dinosaurs. Dr. Blackburn, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Lucy. Tell us a little bit about your research and uh, your latest research, and what did you find when you look at the, the frog's timeline through evolution? 
Well, in general, we're interested in the diversity and evolution of frogs, and there's a truly long timeline to that. Uh, we believe frogs have looked like frogs uh, on Earth for more than 200 million years, so there's a really long time frame to frogs. And so we've often thought about that as a relatively you know, static, constant thing, and um, we've had species evolving over time, but we haven't thought about the the dynamics of that. Have there been bursts of extinction? Have there been bursts of evolution that have happened? And recently, we've used uh, sort of a large-scale genetic study to understand how frogs are related to one another. And when we translated those genetic differences to essentially a, a measure of time, we realized that many of these different lineages that we are really familiar to us today all evolved after the extinction of the dinosaurs. So even though frogs had been on Earth for well over 100 million years before that, many of the lineages that are common in our backyard, pretty much all of the lineages common in our backyard in North America, have all evolved after the extinction of the dinosaurs. And I think that's a really, it's a really cool finding because it reshapes how we think about lineages that are really familiar to us uh, here at home. When we're talking about the mass extinction of dinosaurs, how many lineages of frogs thrived after that? What we found was that three big lineages that today actually represent more than 85% of all living species came from these three different lineages that are basically from the southern continents that were probably evolved in either South America or Africa at the extinction of the dinosaurs. And just to give you a sense of what that is, so we there's about Probably about 80% of 85% or so of all living frog species evolved from lineages that began then. There's about 6,700 species of frogs. So that's a massive amount of the living diversity that all dates to after that extinction event. So one of the things that to us was exciting was thinking about how, you know, these things are familiar to us, but this sort of cryptic history to them it makes us rethink about how extinction events might have actually sort of reshaped the patterns of diversity of these groups that we see today. And why did they survive? How did frogs adapt? Well, you know, what's interesting about frogs is that, uh, and amphibians in general is that they're, they're good at eking out an existence um, in remarkably small places sometimes. And so, you know, we think about these extinction events like um, both Anjan and Scott were talking about as being these sort of massive and potentially when we think about them as these uniform events across the Earth, when we think about these extinction events. And the, the truth, of course, is that, well, that's probably not really true, right? It's, it's a big, bad thing. But there may be places that weren't as badly affected, right? That, that makes sense, right? We, we can think about that with our extinction events that we have here. So there probably were certain spots where things survived. And so I think it's interesting, you know, the 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 impact event that ended the sort of the Cretaceous mm -hmm. was in North America not in Africa. So where do we have these lineages evolving? Well, we think they're evolving from basically Africa or from South America. These things are kind of coming out say, from the shadows, from these places that are far away from the impact event, and sort of repopulating ecosystems after the extinction, probably a mass extinction of many frog lineages that was just was invisible to us previously. You mentioned there are 6,700 species of frogs. How often are they being discovered? And in terms of looking at our, our warming climate, how are they being impacted? That's a great question. So we, as a community of scientists that study amphibians and reptiles, we describe nearly 200, 150 to 200 new species of amphibians every year. Probably the vast majority of those, 100 to 150 species every year, are new species of frogs. These are not, to be clear, newly evolved species. 
these are discoveries. They're discoveries in the field, and often they're discoveries on museum, the shelves of museum collections, things that, for whatever reason, no one's looked at but were collected 60 years ago. Now someone looks at them. And so to sort of make the point of the, the sort of intersection between discovery and extinction, because so many of these things we find are actually on shelves of museums, many of them are already extinct. So we've already entered the realm of your two previous colleagues mm-hmm. who describe extinct species. We've already rent- entered that realm for frogs, where we are now in the business sometimes of describing species that are already extinct in the last couple of decades. So with your new research, what are you doing with the findings, you and your colleagues? Well, one of the things that excites me the most um, is what it sets up as, for me as expectations about the fossil record. So if, if we are correct, it means that if we go back to the fossil record of the time of dinosaurs, we shouldn't see these lineages. And the truth is that the frog fossil record is not, not great. It's not like it is for dinosaurs and for a lot of large animals. It's very hard for us to find and identify extremely tiny, broken bits of bone, which is most of the frog fossil record. So what's fun for me is that it sets up hypotheses that we can test in the lab going back to the fossil record and trying to, trying to basically prove ourselves wrong, right? Are these lineages there? Um, if, if they are, we should expect to find some evidence in the fossil record of this sort of turnover, as both of your previous guests mm-hmm. talked about, this turnover of species diversity that's correlated with the extinction event. Another thing to think about is that, you know, this – we're – we have evidence of how an ex- a mass extinction event reshaped frog diversity afterwards. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, as mentioned, we are also going through an extinction event now, and it begins to make us think about well, what you know, what's going to what's going to come out of the other end of this? How is the extinction events of today going to reshape these communities and ecosystems that we care about and we study in the field? Th- those are interesting questions for us to begin thinking about and pursuing um, in our labs. You mentioned oftentimes you're studying uh, frog species on the shelf that are already extinct, but how are amphibians today doing, the ones that are still living in our backyards? Well, it depends on where your backyard is. Uh, So in general, um, amphibians are among the most threatened group of vertebrates. More than 30% of the living species diversity, so more than 30% of those 6,700 species are threatened with extinction. Uh, there's probably another 20% we don't know about, and I can usually, usually when we don't know, it's not a good thing that we don't know. It's usually a bad thing. So there's a huge proportion of living diversity that's threatened. Much of that is threatened by a combination often of disease, of habitat destruction, and climatic change. And possibly the, the single worst one is habitat loss. Many amphibian species are found in really small areas. So you cut down this forest, it's the only forest where this species is found, so goes the species. So habitat loss and degradation are really important factors, especially driving amphibian declines, as are disease. And sometimes these are in combination. So we're seeing declines and extinctions all around the world over the past 30 to 50 years. We've been talking earlier about dinosaurs. We know you study uh, amphibians. At the end of the day, which would you say is cooler, frogs or dinosaurs? Well, I'm really happy to have a dinosaur program and <laughs> about frogs because I, I will do everything in my power to try and uh, you know argue that frogs are, in fact, cooler than dinosaurs. Well, I want to thank you for giving us a little glimpse of the, the research that you've done, and we'll tweet out links uh, for more details. Dr. Dave Blackburn, um, he's Associate Curator of Amphibians and Reptiles at the Florida Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida. Dr. Blackburn, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you, Lucy, for having me.
Today's show is produced by Carmen Baskoff and Lydia Brown. Special thanks to producer Jeff Tyson on the phones today. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can go to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live for more about the show. You can download our podcast on any podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.